Reading. <laughs> clap, you Let's clap, go. you clap. And take take a hundred. Hi. <laughs> Hi, this is For the Girls Let's Podcast. Go. I'm Nick Westray. I'm Jason Black. This is a queer podcast where we stand out about some famous female performers. Sometimes it's just Nick and I, and sometimes we interview people about their passion and their love for the women who have inspired them. That's right. We interview people uh, who are LGBTQAI and plus about the different divas that inspired them, saved them, uh, that they looked up to, that they worshipped that they pretended they were when they were all alone and their mom went to the store. And we also, sometimes when it's just me and Jason, we cover um, a diva who maybe isn't our number one diva, but is on what I call the Mount Rushmore of divas. Yeah, the and mountain. Is, the mountain's big. The mountain's wide, baby. We don't discriminate on so the mountain. Many. Who is this, who's this podcast for? Like, who should listen to this? This podcast is for everyone who celebrated the movie Book Club. As I did mm. in the theaters. <laughs> this, is, this is a podcast for piano virtuosos. This is a podcast uh, for casting spells on us. This is a podcast for everyone struggling with mental health problems. Yeah, this is a podcast for all the tea and all the reading that we can produce. This is our tea, our truth and reading podcast, okay? This <laughs> Honey's. Is it? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I did some reading and I learned some truth. Okay, mama. That's true. I learned a lot of truth. This is really, I'm so excited about this because this is one of my Mount Rushmore divas, one of the most important female musicians I think that this planet has ever seen or known, who I've been obsessed with since I was a teenager. Nina Simone. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. A singular, earth shattering, international. Uh, one of a kind diva. I mean, this is truly, truly just kind of a talent that uh, will never be replicated. Uh, I can assure that we'll never get again. Uh, yes. You know, supernova alien. Like, I can't even think of all the words to describe uh, Nina Simone or her singularity. But it's, she also doesn't seem like someone who gays are constantly like, oh, yes, Nina Simone. Like, it doesn't seem like someone like who the community like actively stands all the time, maybe because she's a little bit more classical focused or jazz focused and not she didn't really come with the club hits. That's what I'm say. Yeah, she's she's not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no one's like doing death drops. We're not doing a uh, lip sync for your life, though. Wouldn't that be fucking amazing? I mean, yeah, tears. Just, just if you really want to, like, wipe the floor with beautiful tears. Fuck. So, because she's so singular and she's so uh, important to me and to all of us in the world, we decided to do this episode a little differently than we would than we've done any other episode ever, 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 ever. This we've is the Nina Simone this. Book Club. If you Boom. are a Patreon which we hope all of you become, you can support our podcast by going to our Patreon, patreon.com front slash for the girls podcast. Give us $7 a month and you'll get extra episodes. But if you are a Patreon, you knew this was coming because we told you about it there. But yes, Nina Simone book club. We have completed the Nina Simone autobiography. I put a spell on you that she wrote in the nineties with Stephen Cleary. This is our first uh, diva autobiography that we have mm -hmm. done for this podcast. I know. It's and pretty special. It's special. Look, 
Look at all the little dog-eared pages. I mean, I went to oh, town so you Oh, so that's book. what you did? I decided to rip up hectically post-it notes. That <laughs> Hectic I, post-its? I, I would rip up a post-it note, and then sometimes I would just pencil line on the oh, paragraph yeah, that I wanted Oh, yeah, lots of pencil to. in here. Lots of pencil in here. And I even even writing the post-it notes, which is kind of my, my big joke, is that I was like, I can't even read in the moment what I'm writing to inform myself about what uh, I, I want to say for this very special, very first book club. Now, this is not our first book that we have read. This, no. Uh, we have this read other books. This is our third books. book club episode. If you're new to this podcast, we frequently will do a book club episode. We previously have covered Little Women. Oh, I forgot about Little Women. I, I and forgot about what was Little our other Women. one? We did Little Women, and then for the Patreon, we did The Hours. Oh, we did The Hours. That's right. We and did then The we Hours tr- and Little Women. And then we tried and failed to do Little Fires Everywhere. That was Reese right. PC's uh, adaptation of Little Fires <laughs> Everywhere that yes. she did. But we we could not quite find our way into that. But we So we, we skipped it because so if you're also it. new to this podcast, if we are not sparked with joy by something a diva has done... Rather than speak ill of it, we simply move on to something we love. Yes, and 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 this we loves, we loves, we loves. I feel complicated. I feel really complicated because in general, I am not a queen of the autobiography. Well, I'm not really a queen of biographies either. I. We always talk about the dualities, holding two things at once in, in the mm-hmm. hand, holding two That's birds right. in the hand. One's chirping and one's, I don't know, shitting it in your hand. Uh, <laughs> but you can hold them both. They're both beautiful. They're both beautiful little creations of the goddess. Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I don't read I don't read that much. Biographies or autobiographies. I'm going to say that. Yeah, you're that a fiction much. girl. We're both fiction girls. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fiction girl. You know, you know who I really love uh, is this um, author named Mary Carr. She wrote the lie. She was kind of famous for writing the Liars Club. She wrote a book about her addiction mm-hmm. called Lit, uh, and and she she actually teaches the art of autobiography, and and in those and those are something I really could could connect to uh, because mm. she talks about the selectiveness of memory, and a lot of times she'll she'll describe something and then she'll say that's just done. That's all. That's as far as I can remember. And then also include everyone else has their other memories around these events that I'm describing and have right. has different experiences around them. And so, being able to read it is that she's also she's she's kind of talking about moments of her life and then talking about talking about them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's very meta. It's very layered. Right, and so and so for that I was I can be really into, but I I sometimes think that when celebrities are writing about their lives, I'm like, am I really going to get all the tea? Am I really going to get all the information? How much is your ego getting to get into this? How much is the ghostwriter going right. to be uh, cleaning this up for you? Right. Uh, so yeah, so I, I I've, I've had a hesitation and- towards them. And Nina Simone is an incredibly complicated individual. As we said in the intro, you know, it's very well known about Nina Simone that she suffered from some mental health struggles throughout her life. And something Jay and I have also talked a lot about on this podcast is I find that a lot of documentaries about divas, especially divas who had struggles in their lives, tend to just focus on the struggle and never the art. Please see every documentary ever made about... Whitney Houston, as an example of that. And the thing I love about... Actually, reading, don't see them. We're going to... Actually, see don't them. see them. Don't see yeah, them. Yeah, just don't, don't see, see them. them. I don't wish we them. had a, a Whitney autobiography, because even if we weren't getting all the tea, I would have at least gotten her point of view, whatever she wanted me to know about her life. And I want to start 
this off by playing this clip, which I would like you to watch with me right now. Nina Simone throughout her life spoke very eloquently about the idea of freedom and what that meant as a black person in America and what that meant as a black woman in America, what that meant as an artist in America. And what I love about reading her autobiography is it's like she has the freedom to have control of her own story. And that's what I find so beautiful about that. Well, what's free to you mean? That's what's what free I'm, to me? Yeah. Same thing it is to you. You tell me. No, no, you tell me. <laughs> no, no. Because <laughs> I have to talk to you for such it's a long time. It's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. It's like, how do you tell somebody how it feels to be in love? How are you going to tell anybody who has not been in love how it feels to be in love? You cannot do it to save your life. You can describe things, but you can't tell them. But you know it when it happens. That's what I mean by free. I've had a couple of times on stage when I really felt free. And that's something else. That's really oh. something else. Like all, all, like, like, I'll tell you what freedom is to me. No fear. I mean, really, no fear. If I, if I could have that half of my life, no fear. Lots of children have no fear. That's the closest way, that's the only way I can describe it. That's not all of it. But it is something to really, really feel. Wow, and that's the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's, she spoke more eloquently about that struggle. Um, and she put that struggle into her music so fully and we're going to cover a lot of her music in this episode but i hope that us sharing the music in context of her life and what we've learned about her life will help you hear the music differently or understand the music differently because i'm now listening to the music differently knowing so many things that i did not know before because nina is so often right background music she is how many times have you heard her wild as the wind on the fucking uh, trailer for the movie. She's always being used in like a commercial or like like this kind of like jazzy backgroundy evocative thing. And I think that her she is so she recorded so much amazing music. And I think understanding the context and the place where it came from and pulling it to the center is very important to me. Uh, you, you know, for me, uh, what I think was uh, one of the contexts that I had for Nina Simone was in the aughts in the earlier aughts when mm -hmm. Starbucks started co-opting the Nina Simone sound and yeah. like selling her albums mm -hmm. and, and, and for some reason that kind of co-opting of the artist turned like kind of turned me off. And I, it was a, it was a really um, unfair thing in my part. There was a, a, something about, about it that like, Oh, now Nina Simone is accessible to everyone and everyone you know, is owning her music and it's, it's very much this kind of, it was degraded to this kind of coffee house aesthetic. That's yeah. absolutely like completely an analogous to what she does. And then mm -hmm. reading her book, I, I, it was even more horrifying to hear how, how upset she would have been to have been placed in oh my that God. kind of context. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? To have been like placed in this like essentially white middle brow liberal um, ownership, 
of literally her catalog, she would she would like come to the Starbucks and break and it, burn down it down with a crowbar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And something about that me I remember making me feel really gross and kind of separated me from from her in a way. And I you know, I didn't I couldn't quite put it into context until I read her you know, because I, I couldn't quite spin how deep and how personal her music was to the way that she was getting rebranded during right. the aughts and kind of, you know. Yeah. And now she was being, she's, uh, the licensing of her music is uh, something that she fought her, her her whole life with record companies about. And yeah, I think that America has used her to sell cars, to sell movies, to sell coffee in a very, very, very fucked up way. And we're going to tell you why that's fucked up by telling you everything about her life. So buckle in and get ready to meet Eunice Kathleen Waymans, born in Tryon, North Carolina. Her mom was a preacher. Her father was a barber, a musician, a handyman, so many things. And her father and her relationship in this book is so beautiful. And they were very, very close because uh, when Nina was very young, she's the sixth of eight children. And when she was very young, her father had an illness. I don't really know. What was it? He had some terrible illness that he had to recover from where he basically had an, uh, one of those kind of crazy open wounds in his stomach. Yeah, like they gutted his like stomach, essentially crazy and she stayed home with him she was at that age like before school she wasn't school age yet so she was staying home with him but still old enough to be helpful and like get her dad water and help him change his bandages and things like that and she stayed home with him for this very long period of time in her childhood and they had this immense bond because of it that was so beautiful Papa can you hear me Papa can you see me? Papa, can you find me in the night? Daddy, how I love you. Daddy, how I need you. Daddy, how I miss you. Kissing me. Good night. Biggest part of this book are the are the are the earlier chapters of her vividly describing her childhood. Yeah, you know her describing what it was like in her really her earliest ages before the depression, and then what happened to her family during the depression, and they were kind of where is her town? What in North Carolina. Like? In North Carolina, about how kind of her town was this resort town, mm-hmm. and how it was segregated uh, uh, during that time. But yeah. that there was still some some kind of decency that she experienced. Right. Yeah, there was. She experienced like not not being able to go into restaurants or order in restaurants. But there was still a respect given to her family because of um, the jobs her father and mother did. And there was 
it was peaceful. It wasn't violent segregation, but she does speak very eloquently about realizing that age at which she realized the difference. You know what, you know what, for me, you know, where she really, and as we say in this podcast all the time, we are two cis white men. Mm-hmm. And everything that happened during this summer with Black Lives Matter and what felt like a nation waking up, coming from my own self as this cis white man, this very privileged self, is how comfortable it is to me to fall back into my own skin and stop worrying about other people's problems. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I, it's, I think that's the, uh, the huge issue of our nation is that as much as we put signs out in our yard, we still can really walk around and... And, and shut off our empathy and shut off our understanding and shut off our learning. A lot of what this book has, has helped me to do uh, was to kind of rip myself out of that comfort mm-hmm. and to uh, be based in this person's experience. Yeah. And one of the things she talked and, and one of the things that was eye opening to my privileged self was that. Uh, her father had jobs. Her mother was this pre- was this preacher. Do you know what I mean? And and from a white person, those are two. Those are ju- that's that's middle class. It, the right. the white preachers were middle class, and they got this great house. Her mother, who was doing all of these revivals and touring touring around and. Uh, doing all these great things. Guess what, y'all? She was still having to clean house for a white woman. She was still mm-hmm. having to bring her baby daughter Nina. Uh, to these white houses and in and in these places where Nina was able to play with the white kid up into a point. Right. Up into a point and, and walking into this house and seeing what it was, you know, for her, like she had a great life. And then she saw what it was to be a white person and to have a white life and to have a white house and yeah. to have her mother who worked constantly and then had to go and be this other person, be a maid. Do you know what I mean? Who who had such high standards. And that was just uh, that was just so eye opening for me. It was just the nature of the Jim Crow South. Yep. And Nina, her mom came home when she was two and a half. And Nina was just seated at their piano playing God Be With You Till We Meet Again, which is a hymn. And she said that at that moment, I had received a gift from God. Like she just knew how to play the piano. And it was just, just this amazing thing that their family just kind of witnessed. passage uh, where she talks about her gifts. These achievements were oppressive enough, but my parents gained real respect for the way they were as people. They could have been arrogant or boastful about themselves um, or their family, but they weren't. They just got on with things and tried to live a decent Christian life. So the entire time that this uh, savant is in the house, Mm. you know, uh, she talks about about how that that was a gift from God. And that's a natural thing. To have these right. gifts. The other natural thing is to nourish these gifts, but it's not natural to be boastful about them. Right. 
Like that's actually right. the sinful part. It's uh, you take these gifts and you do it in the betterment of other people. And that right. is being decent. That is being humble. And she really kind of keeps hitting on that in these beginning chapters. Yeah. And it's also used to exalt the Lord. Right. Mm -hmm. And I love this thing she says about gospel music. She says gospel music was mostly improvisation within a, a fixed framework. And it never occurred to me to analyze it. Gospel was part of church, which was part of normal life. You don't sit around wondering exactly how it is you walk or breathe or do any other everyday thing. Even so, gospel taught me about improvisation, how to shape music in response to an audience, and then how to shape the mood of the audience in response to my music, which is so Nina Simone as a live performer is one of the most extraordinary things. I think my real love for her really catalyzed with YouTube. When I was in college, I loved Nina Simone. After I found Billie Holiday, I found Nina Simone uh, CDs at the Barnes and Noble. Like we've always told you, our education started. And then once I was in college, YouTube became a thing and I became obsessed with watching videos of her concerts. And she is the most exciting, dynamic live performer I think we've ever had. She had this natural gift. She's playing in church for her mom ever since she's very young. And they eventually... She was like the lead pianist. Like she was the yeah, pianist. At like six years old. And they decide that she needs to get proper training. So they take her to this piano teacher in the town named Mrs. Maisie. And Mrs. Maisie is, Nina describes as the only person in her life who ever gave her praise or physical affection. And she thought of her as her white mama. Mrs. Maisie had this beautiful house and Nina would have to walk there for her lessons every week. And Mrs. Maisie started her on one thing, which is Bach. Okay. We're going to read this because I have this yes. right down here. Are you ready? On page 23. Uh-huh. Yep. Go. And this to me really defines, you know, what I think I, I, I take took, took away so much of, of from this was uh, what a mathematician Nina was mm. and how how actually how calculated she was and and what she wanted to produce and I think mm -hmm. she carried that throughout everything and like and, and then when you do and then and we'll get into it in the later chapters but she she takes this beginning this understanding of classical music into how she wanted to control her concerts 
yes. and how she wanted to, you know, basically orchestrate the audience and herself into like one gigantic production. And she writes this, when you play box music, you have to understand that he is a mathematician and all the notes you play add up to something that makes sense. They always add up to climaxes, like ocean waves getting bigger and bigger until after a while when so many waves have gathered, you have a great storm. Each note you play is connected to the next note, and every note has to be executed perfectly, or the whole effect is lost. Mm. And the idea of the effect of the thing, you know, the idea that that is so great, that is so big, that is so something that I cannot see or do, that kind of genius yeah. of understanding. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's how great geniuses' brains are just different. And there's this beautiful version. She, Nina created a career in which she took standards or things we know from the American songbook and made them into classical fugues. And this can be heard really um, specifically in her version of Love Me or Leave Me, where she basically puts in a Bach-like fugue into the music. she realized this about Bach was a concert pianist and that's all she ever wanted in her life was to reach that level of excellence and perfection that Carnegie Hall moment and Mrs. Massey taught her posture and taught her performance style to get her ready for that and they started a fund in the town because her family didn't have a lot of money they started the Eunice Wayman Fund where the whole town donated to her musical education so that she could continue to take the lessons and save for her future training. And in return, she would give these classical concerts to her whole town. And she has this really great passage. I mean, as like as idyllic as this town seems, it's, it wasn't. There was still an right. absolute divide. She talks about uh, when she was 11 and she was performing for the town to kind of give back to this uh, Eunice Fund. And um, they move her family 
from the front row yeah. to move in another white family. And at 11, she said, no, my, my mother and father have to be here. They have to see this. And uh, I just, I, I, I love this line. Uh, she, she writes about reflecting on that. And she says, the day after the recital, I walked around feeling as if I had been flayed and every slight real or imagined cut me raw. But the skin grew back again, a little tougher, a little less innocent and a little more black. Hmm. You know, what else can we do? But I, what else can I do but reflect on how great my privilege is? <laughs> like I, I that all I can do is constantly. I will never know what this feels like. I will never know that. I have to settle in that truth and then continually reaffirm the literal privilege I have in my skin, yeah. you know, and, and Nina is really here to let you know <laughs> that great divide and difference. Yeah. And that she, and that a child is coming to this realization that even as she is lauded for this amazing thing she can do, her family is being treated this way. Her family is being shunted to the back and that realization she's, it's so eloquent about, that real realization that a black girl would have at this young age, that she is fighting against a system that is built to destroy her. And that she'll never be able to walk around this white world as an equal. Yeah. And that's what, that's what that first clip we're talking about is like what freedom means and where you get it and how you get it. And Nina is so honest about her, various awakenings throughout her life and how it's a rolling experience for her, be it this moment or the civil rights movement, which we'll get into like she, her, her consciousness evolving, her own awareness of the world um, opening and deepening. On a completely different topic, I am completely obsessed with the story of Edney. Oh, Edney. She is too. She is too. Oh y'all, my we've God. Been... <laughs> Edney is her is high school too. sweetheart oh, who y'all. is this Native American boy who is so beautiful and they are so in love and their families are totally cool with it. And uh, she tells the story, I have to tell it, of later in life. She and Edney don't get married, don't stay together. Nina Simone goes off to become Nina Simone. But she says... Time passed, I traveled all over the world, lived a life I could never have imagined and knew all sorts of love. One day I found myself in Tryon again, alone. I was miserable and it seemed like God was punishing me for leaving Edney all those years ago. So I decided to claim him at last. I dressed in red, green and black, put on a Yves Saint Laurent hat and set out. I had my car stop at his house and walked up to the door. Two of his five children stood on the doorstep. They were gigantic. Where's your daddy? I asked them. And she goes into the house and like finds him and like they hold each other's faces and like uh, muse over the fact that they were never together, but they loved each other. And she asks him to come with her and he says no. And it's just this. um, Could you imagine Nina Simone being your high school girlfriend and her showing up in her limo to try to take you back with her? And Jesus. Then she, so she doesn't get him, but she takes back her um, like high school photo that's been sitting on his piano as a mm. keepsake that she then ends up like, like, like <laughs> leaving at some famous person's house. I will say, I mean, this, this is amazing. This book is bananas. Her, this book is like very intimate in a very certain way. And the intimacy comes a lot in her romantic relationships that she's mm-hmm. very clearly working through in her memories and mourning. Something about reading this. So again, like the whole autobiography thing is it almost feels like sketched journal entries 
Yes. You know, like sketched, like almost very true blood memories. Like there's feels like there's almost like this like blood and tears on the page that jumps around in time. Like we're, we were only in like the very, like not even in 40 pages and she's already jumped into the future of her, of her trying to go back to the small town and it keeps happening. So like in the book, people will appear and then disappear. Sometimes we'll appear without any real introduction or like knowledge as if we've always known all along who this person was. And then they just go away. There can be a paragraph on someone, you know, that maybe doesn't come back for it. That doesn't think it's mentioned in with a bunch of people. It's bananas and it's super fascinating and amazing. So we might, so we're going to kind of, so if we seem like we're just like shooting through her life, that's because she shoots through her life. Shoots like a star through her life. I mean, the next thing that happens to Nina Simone is that she gets into Juilliard. She gets accepted to the Juilliard school, but she doesn't get accepted to the Curtis school of music, which is where she really wanted to go. She goes to, she moves to Harlem She goes to Juilliard for a year and she is the first black woman to ever be accepted in the piano department at Juilliard. And it was a big fucking deal. And she loves her teacher there, but she can't afford to continue with it. So she ends up moving to Philadelphia and becoming an accompanist for a singing teacher. And then she starts her own kind of studio storefront playing the piano for people who want singing lessons. And so she's teaching people how to sing at the piano, making money that way until someone tells her that she should play at a bar. And she starts playing at the Midtown Bar in Atlantic City. And the first night, I love this quote so much. And she says, nobody said anything when I walked in, but they all turned to look at me. Harry's cigar almost went out. I sat on stage a diva a professional entertainer for the first time and played to an audience of drunken Irish bums. So at the beginning, she was, Nina was not a singer. She wasn't even considered, considering wanting to sing. That was never her goal. All of this workup is like, she really had a singular uh, focus her mother, her mute, her piano teacher. They all had this very singular focus for her. She was practicing. This also made me think about um, what we do do to geniuses and people with an innate talent and how I I actually, I'm like, "Mm, it's problematic. I think it's actually very problematic. I was thinking about like what we, what we stress upon natural athletes, gymnasts, and and and, mm-hmm. and how we suppress everything else in their lives to be singular in this one way. And Nina yeah. talks about it. She talks about how she really didn't have – she was shy. She didn't have much personal experience. Literally, if she wasn't working or, or doing school or whatever else that possibly she could get done, she was practicing five hours a, a day. That's just you in a room uh, with your intimate constantly trying to hone these talents that other people are saying this is what makes you great. This very insular, small thing that no one else could understand – you know what yeah. I mean? Like I couldn't listen to you and tell you if what you did wrong or if the note wasn't sustained long enough, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, but there's all of these requirements on that. It, it was really fascinating to see how much pressure was put upon her and, and, and to think about how I, I in a way of like, wow, it, it, that's, there's also such a disservice in that, in what we mm. do to our, what we do to our talent. Yeah. Our I geniuses. mean, to, the drive that kind of American drive to be the best or to achieve 
especially with people who are achieving something that no one has ever achieved before. I mean, Nina Simone is the first black female concert pianist to play Carnegie Hall. You know, like that's a big fucking deal. Right. You know? Right. And then you get, I, I, there's a documentary called What Happened, Miss Simone, which is about Nina's life and her activism and her mental illness. It's like, but you, you're like, oh, well, no wonder someone goes crazy when they're worked this hard, you know, and are already a complete genius. Right. Right. There, it, like you, you are so, <laughs> you know, when you have that kind of singular talent, you are so full with everything. You yeah. know, that there's just Brimming. no way to not burn out. In fact, in most of this book, large passages of this book, are her basically pleading with us and everyone around her to let her rest, that she just yeah. needs to rest. But take, but take this in. So this is when she starts learning to sing. And this is what she does with it. I'm obsessed. So the next night I sang as well. It wasn't hard to fit into the improvisation because I used my voice as a third layer, complementing the other two layers, my right and left hands. When I got to the part where I used elements of popular songs, I would simply sing the lyrics and play around with it, repeating single lines over again, repeating verses, changing the order of the words. It was fun. Mm -hmm. My baby don't care for shows. My baby don't care for clothes. My baby just cares for me. My baby don't care for cars and races. My baby don't care for. I don't please. Liz Taylor is not a star high. And even Lana Turner's smile Something he can't see My baby don't care Who knows My baby just cares For me just and the she way that she says, thinks about music is yeah. so incredible and she so also says, free. Because I spent so long accompanying untalented students, I came to despise popular songs and I never played them for my own amusement. Why should I when I could be playing Bach or Liszt? That was real music. And in it, I found a happiness I didn't have to share with anybody. So the only way I could stand playing in the Midtown Bar was to make my set as close to classical music as possible without getting fired. someone's first episode of us they're like oh cool so they just don't create content they literally just read they just read the book they just read the book oh so cool so this is just a free audio book 
<laughs> that's called for the girls <laughs> but i did write in very large letters diva because listen to that now listen to this um yes my attitude uh to performing was that of a classically trained musician when you play you give all of your concentration to the music because it deserves total respect and an audience should sit still and be quiet that's how i played at the midtown and my students mm-hmm. understood it if a drunk mm-hmm. started shouting or fighting while I was playing, it broke my concentration. So I stopped playing until they were quiet. And if they weren't quiet, I wouldn't play. When that happened, my students would grab the guy and throw him out on the street. My attitude to live audiences was formed there at the Midtown. And it has never changed, no matter who the audience or how big the concert hall. If an audience disrespects me, it is insulting to the music I play. This is how much she honor. I'm, I'm stopping here right now. This yes. is how much she honors honors her craft um and she says i will not continue because if they don't want to listen then i don't want to play an audience chooses to come and see me perform i don't choose the audience i don't need them either and if they don't like my attitude then they don't have to come and see me others will who shivers shivers honey yes I mean, this is what I'm talking about. When you watch Nina Simone concerts on YouTube, she will literally tell the audience when to clap. She will stop if they don't respond to her the way that she thinks is rational. She will question them. She's the greatest concert monologuist of all time. And sometimes it seems crazy, but it's actually just someone who isn't putting on a bullshit facade. She's just... This she feels so deeply and she is so deeply honest about things that she just fucking says it. She can't hold it in. She can't pretend to be having a good time if she's not. And she won't. And she'll fucking let the audience know or she'll leave. The flippant, you know, the flippant term would be like she doesn't suffer fools gladly. But also you have to think that as a black woman during this time breaking all these kinds of barriers, she had very, very little agency. And she was damned well going to show you when she's doing her craft that you're going to respect her. What was that amazing? Is because because the world gave her so little agency, she went in the opposite direction. She was like, watch how much agency I have because I am a virtuoso. And no one can do what I can do. And she knew that. No one. No one has been able to do that. So she gets her first recording contract. She moves to New York. She moves to other bars. She gets her first recording contract. And we're going to talk about this for a while. It's called, she calls it the Bethlehem album. It's actually two albums. They're her first two albums. They're the albums I got as a teenager. Um, One is now known as, if you look it up on Spotify, Little Girl Blue. Mm -hmm. But when I got it and the copy I still have of it that is on vinyl uh, is called jazz as played by nina simone (laughs) and the second album is called nina simone and her friends but they're all from one recording session with bethlehem records was the record company that produced it and she did it all in one session and the song little girl blue is a song that she wrote and she met um, a musician named al shackman who is a very famous jazz musician in and of his own right um, but at this time was a young, a young jazz musician. And she says, I'd certainly never heard of Al Shackman and I eyed him with suspicion, but he'd driven over to play and I didn't want to seem rude. So I sat down at the piano and waited for him to set up. When he was finally ready, he looked over and I called the title of the first song, Little Girl Blue. What happened next was one of the most amazing moments of my entire life. Remember that I wasn't, anything like a typical nightclub pianist. 
I wasn't a jazz player, but a classical musician, and I improvised arrangements of popular songs using classical motifs. It's not a predictable art. For example, before I started playing, I wouldn't be able to say where I would come in with the lyric because the number of bars I'd played before starting to sing depended on what I did with the opening section. Although jazz musicians are used to improvising, they need to be familiar with how another musician plays before they can really get something going. They have to listen and get their minds on the same track, or they get a lot of hesitations and false starts. But when I started in on Little Girl Blue, Al was right there with me from the first moment, as if we had been playing together all of our lives. just her Midtown Bar set. So when we talked about what she was doing at that Midtown Bar, these two albums you can listen to, and that's basically her set. That's what she would play on a night there. And one of the songs she completely made up on the spot. Uh, It's called African Mailman. It's fucking amazing. And she made it up in the studio session. So what you're about to hear is something that Nina Simone just made up out of thin air, just pulled out of her mind and recorded it in one take. That is fucking crazy to me. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is uh, 
so now we're starting to get into kind of the weeds of this book <laughs> and yeah. the weeds don't actually surround so much of her music or as much as maybe one would think coming to such an such a you know such a uh, beyond this world impactful artist and again that's us taking that in hindsight i think she's living her life she's living her memories and her experiences um and i think a lot of these a lot of these recordings she doesn't feel complete ownership uh, ownership for because uh because of the shadiness and the awfulness of what what contracts and and producers do and did to yeah. her music they mm-hmm. kind of again took her agency away from them away from mm-hmm. her and she would find out that something was a hit and receive no royalties for them yeah like like i loves you porgy Mm-hmm. was a huge hit. She went on to, she recorded an album at Town Hall and she sang this song from, well, she recorded this song from Porgy and Bess on, in the Bethlehem sessions and it became a massive hit and it was getting played all over the place and she, you know, would get no money for it. But they, I love this part where she talks about the comparison with Billie Holiday because Billie Holiday had a very, very famous recording of I love you, Porgy. And she says, because of Porgy, people often compared me to Billie Holiday, which I hated. That was just one song out of my repertoire. And anybody who saw me perform could see we were entirely different. What made me mad was that it meant people couldn't get past the fact that we were both black. If I had happened to be white, nobody would have made the connection. And I didn't like to be put in a box with other jazz singers because my musicianship was totally different and in its own way, superior. Calling me a jazz singer was a way of ignoring my musical background because I didn't fit into white ideas of what a black performer should be. It was a racist thing. If she's black, she must be a jazz singer. It diminished me, exactly like Langston Hughes was diminished when people called him a great black poet. Langston was a great poet, period. And it was up to him and him alone to say what part of what part the color of his skin had to do with that. Uh, the next paragraph, she says, if I had to be called something, it would have been a folk singer because there is more folk and blues and jazz in my playing. Let him handle me and drive me mad If you can keep me, I want to stay here With you forever, I've got my man Someday I know he's coming to call me He's going to handle me And hold me so It's going to be Like dying Poggy When he calls me But when he comes I know to go I love you 
I'm telling you, this, all this stuff, so she starts to get famous at this time in her life. And she and Odetta are just like hanging out in the village together. She starts making a bit of money. She's married to a terrible man, of course. But she and Odetta is a very famous also singer who's hard to put a label on. I would say folk singer. But she said, I was determined to enjoy this life for as long as it lasted. And when I had time, I'd walk around the village, stopping off at Renzi's Coffee House on McDougal for iced coffee or coffee ice cream. I made friends with Odetta and I'd see her there and we'd sit and watch the world go by. Talk, maybe shop, but usually just relax. <laughs> yeah, she I just gives love a that idea. Really just unbelievable snapshot of that time of all yeah. the different kind of uh, people that were trying to come up and different styles and and how exciting that was. Uh, it's so it's so thrilling. I mean, she says those first months after town hall, my life blazed. And for a moment, I thought I had everything I wanted. There was money and the promise of more together with fame and respect. She did this big concert at that time. Uh, and it's it's a great recording called Live at the Village Gate. And speaking of being a folk singer, like you said, her recording of the House of the Rising Sun possibly one of the most iconic Nina Simone recordings of all time, but it blends that classical into the folk and just that time in American history so beautifully. There is a house in New Orleans They call it the Rising Sun If I had only listened to what my mama said, I'd be at home today. But being so young and foolish, my Lord, let again. talk about this on the for the girls the husbandgers uh you know of it all yeah. and that and his name was andy and she really gets into well andy does andy's kind of creepy and scary uh and there's he's a, a cop he's a cop and you know he definitely she definitely documents this unbelievably frightening terrifying experience that she has with andy uh but she also talks about the relief that it was to not have to worry about anything but her artistry. 
Like she spends yes. a lot of time in this book talking about all of the stresses that uh, she didn't have to deal with. And that kind of allowed her to keep creating mm-hmm. to not have to worry about, uh, because she was a perfectionist. I think that that I just had, I mean, she was an absolute huge perfectionist, huge yes. perfectionist. And, and during this early part of her career that we were just covering, she was managing herself. She was like booking all of her club dates, you know, all of this. She didn't have any help. And so this very assertive man, Andy comes along and Yes, she gets to just focus on her art because Andy is dealing with the dates and the money and the everything of it all. But the specter of Andy in this book, Andy is extremely physically abusive and Nina details it very vividly. And I was so terrified for the rest of the book that he was in it because I was just, it was like he is this specter looming over everything in her life. Be my husband and I be your wife. Be my husband, man, I be your wife. Be my husband, man, I be your wife. Love and honor you the rest of your life, yeah. If you promise me you be my man, yeah. If you promise me you be my man, yeah. Me, you be my man. I will love you the best I can. Yeah, stick to the promise, man. You made me stick to the promise, man. You made me, yeah, 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 yeah. Stick to the promise, man. You made me, oh, not you. It's funny because she writes kind of, uh, she writes about the ghosts in her life and she really creates ghosts, like a true atmosphere of ghosts in this book. Like I, like I've said, she brings out characters and then they just kind of loom in the, the periphery of these mm-hmm. lines and then they kind of pop back up and fade back in. It's a really kind of fade in, fade out uh, uh, book reading of this and experience yes. of it in which it's almost like kind of, it's almost, you do have to read it to have it because it's parts of it are really not tangible, to, you know, to necessarily completely speak on because now we're getting close to her civil rights time. Yes. And at this point, she's reaching the level of international stardom. She's touring, her albums are coming out, and she says getting stardom, once you've got it, keeping it is like fighting a war. You know, she has her first daughter at this time. They move upstate a little bit and they get a little house. Yeah. And the civil rights movement is starting. And she says this amazing thing, which is, I had not made a connection between the fights I had and any wider struggle for justice because of how I was raised. The Wayman way was to turn away from prejudice and to live your life as the best you could, as if acknowledging the existence of racism was in itself a kind of defeat. But then she meets Lorraine Hansberry. And for all the kids who don't know, Lorraine Hansberry is the great playwright who wrote A Raisin in the Sun. And Lorraine started, became her best friend. And she said she started helping her think about the movement in an organized way. 
And she says, all of their talk was of Lenin, Marx, and revolution. Girl talk. I love this. She says this about Lorraine. Lorraine was truly dedicated. Although she loved beautiful things, she denied them to herself because they would distract her from the struggle, which was her life. She wore no makeup except except lipstick and had only five dresses. I'm pretty the way I am, she'd say. I don't need lots of clothes. Mm. Man, Lorraine Hansberry unfortunately passed away from cancer at the age of 34 and she was in the middle of writing a play called to be young gifted and black and she never got to finish that play so nina decided to write a song with that title which became a a great anthem of not only of the civil rights movement and the black is beautiful movement about how before it was it, it was being a classical what consumed her was being a classical uh pianist and then she became this uh performer and fame uh you know uh consumed her and then she had uh, had her daughter and a family and that was starting to take up time and then really this this was the thing that really filled her up and kind of directed her for the next multiple years in and yes. what she, she became a, was about. She was became the do. voice, one of the many voices of the civil rights movement. She said it was the death of Medgar Evers that was the match that lit the fuse in her activism. Medgar Evers was a field secretary of the NAACP in Jackson, Mississippi, and he was shot to death on the steps in front of his home. And then shortly after that, there was the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama where four little girls who were attending Bible study were bombed and killed. And Nina says the bombing of the little girls in Alabama and the murder of Medgar Evers were like the final pieces of a jigsaw that made no sense until you had fitted the whole thing together. I suddenly realized what it was to be black in America in 1963, but it wasn't an intellectual connection of the type Lorraine had been repeating to me over and over. It came as a rush of fury, hatred, and determination. In church language, the truth entered into me, and I came through. Hmm. Hmm. And this caused her to write her first civil rights song, her real first civil rights song, which is called Mississippi Gandhi. 
Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Can't you see it? I know you can feel it It's all in the air I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama's got me so upset And Governor Wallace has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Hound dogs on my trail School children sitting in jail Black cat cross my path I think every day's gonna be my last Lord have mercy on the land of mine We all gonna get it in due time I don't belong here I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in prayer Did you know this song before you read this book? Oh yes Oh yes yeah. This is one of my all-time favorite uh, I mean... This is one of the rawest, uh, most intimately connected things I've ever felt listening to the, listening to anyone perform in my entire life. Yeah, it's amazing. And they wouldn't play it on the radio because she says, God damn. And it's, it's, like, it's like someone finally said, like, this is what it feels like, you know? She, like, put it into music in a way that isn't a call for change or isn't trying to be beautiful or isn't trying to be oh, can't we all just get along? It's just a pure expression of what the fuck are you doing to my people? And she starts talking about bringing bringing that into her concerts, bringing Mm -hmm. the politics and bringing all of the things that she is learning into her concerts and just kind of, I love this passage. This is more on a technical note. Uh, Mm -hmm. But she says, uh, she says this. I know it all sounds like I know it all sounds a little Californian and wired, but it wasn't that at all. I had technique and I used it to cast a spell over an audience. I would start with the song to create a certain mood, which I carried into the next song and then on through into the third until I created a certain climax of feeling. And by them, they would be Mm. hypnotized to check. I'd Mm. stop and do something for a moment and I'd hear absolute silence. I'd got them. It was always an uncanny moment. It was as if there was a power source somewhere that we all plugged into, and the bigger the audience, the easier it was. As if each person supplied a certain amount of the power. I put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. Stop the things you do I ain't lying No, I ain't lying You know I can't stand it You're running around You know better, daddy I can't stand it Cause you put me down Yeah, yeah spell on you 
Exactly what she was, uh, what she was wanting to do, and and learning about this, you know, learning about educating herself and getting involved with all of these organizations that were uh, starting up to try and combat segregation. Yeah, and she she became friends with Stokely Carmichael. She tried to seduce Louis Farrakhan. She, I mean, this her, her history in the civil rights movement is amazing. She ends up having to take like two very small private planes to try to make it to Selma and Montgomery to give a concert, but they're trying to block them from coming in. And it's her, Harry Belafonte, Langston Hughes, and Shelley Winters trying to make it to this benefit concert. And there are all these people trying to stop them from getting there. And they're literally risking their lives trying to even make it there. It's incredible. It's incredible. The story she has. On uh, this. I love this line. This was right. She talks about this right before she talks about this. That crazy flight is. Uh, she says, uh, "Listen to this." She says, "Anyone who has power only has it at the expense of someone else, and to mm. take that power away from them, you have to use force because they'll never give it up uh, from choice." Yes, she was rev, and this was revolutionary in the Still middle is. of all of. In the, I know it's still revolutionary to say these things. In the middle of all this, she finally gets a concert at Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because it's in the midst of all of these things that are happening. But she says on 15th of January, 1965, a couple of months before Selma, I gave a concert at Carnegie Hall. The first half of the concert I performed partly solo and partly with my musicians. The second half with a full symphony orchestra. It was a sort of concert I would have killed for when I was Eunice Wayman. And even as Nina Simone, it gave me enormous pleasure. Ms. Maisie was in the audience and I sat at the piano waiting for the orchestra to settle. I looked up to where I knew she was sitting. Next to her were my parents who, had, who I had brought up from South Carolina to see me. Daddy walked into my dressing room afterwards with pride shining out of his eyes and hugged me. Mama didn't say a word about being proud of me then and has never mentioned it since. Ms. Mazzy told me that when I wasn't around, Mama did say she was proud, but she would never mention it to my face. I longed for her to say it just once. If you knew how I missed you You would not stay Just you, just me, my love. 
really speaking to me and something that I feel is, is in everyone's life and it seems to be so prominent in people who think that they have reached a certain place, you know, a certain uh, career, a certain part in their career or job is the loneliness that they experience. And she really mm-hmm. expresses a lot of that throughout this book. Uh, uh, she's, she has this thing where she says uh, that there was no way I, I could know such closeness and community. On stage, I might create a feeling of unity strong enough to keep me awake for a week, but I always came down to the knowledge that I was different. I had no community at the back of me. I was a national star, mm-hmm. and my job was to go wherever I was needed. Uh, and mm-hmm. then she says this. She says, sometimes I think the whole of my life has been a search to find the one place I truly belong. And wow. it really, and I really do think that that's almost, she actually, we, we, we didn't do the intro. She, uh, I'll, I'll never forget this. Uh, she intros this in her prologue. And one of her other great friends was James Baldwin. And uh, he yes. says, he says to her, and this is the theme, kind of the theme of the book. This is the world you have made for yourself, Nina. Now you have to live in it. Yeah. And I, I think I'm, I'll think about that for the rest of my life. And I'll think about, I, I definitely get down on myself about what's going on with my professional life, what's going on with this. And then, and then I sometimes have to think, wait, but you've been loved and you love, mm. you know, love. Mm. Mm. And I'm always so fascinated about people who I think are probably the greatest people in the whole wide world, you know, and who have done some of the most amazing things, how it comes down to that lack of feeling of that. And the constant yeah. search of that and how I'm like, well, my gosh, if I had one tenth of that, of the, of this, I'd be so full of, of everything. You know, I would be right. the greatest thing, one tenth of this power. But then you realize how insecure in the end and how alone they feel, how they get all this adoration. But when they go home, they feel so isolated and alone. And here Nina Simone talk about that. Th- and she talks about that throughout her book about throughout this whole thing about that experience it was so illuminating to me that you could be at the height of your career and still feel and and, and still feel this lack of connection well and she keeps searching for it i mean literally there's so much more of her life to tell you about but she moves from she 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 moves moves america she moves to she moves to barbados (laughs) she moves to liberia she moves to France. She moves she to Switzerland. She moves to Switzerland. She yes, goes back to America. To Y'all, at, the, at a certain part in this book, it becomes this really wild, hard-to-plot travelogue uh, that Nina Simone is just kind of free-associating us to and freewheeling. Like, I love, I love, I, I kept writing, time jump, time jump, because she'll, like, go to Barbados and then mention that she had to fly back for some IRS uh, problems uh-huh. and then was oh, like yeah, Andy much. the husband of Jer messes much. up her whole tax they situation. all do don't they don't they all just man they did that man. to Doris Day they did that all these fucking men fucking they did it to Tina Turner god damn it god damn it and then it falls on on these women who are like and, and she was like this is the one thing that you were doing this was the one thing that was allowing me to create all these millions of dollars for you all and now it's on my head now mm-hmm. it's uh, now it's and my it's, name. I'm in the business of the. I'm and now I'm all alone in the business of Nina Simone. When you all were profiting, mm-hmm. all profiting off of this business. Well, that's why she says I was rich and famous, but I was not free. Mm-hmm. And that is also happening. Like she's feeling that very acutely during the civil rights movement, and she arrives. Okay, so back to the '60s, 1968. She arrives 
in rehearsal for a concert on Long Island, and she is greeted by the news that Martin Luther King Jr. has been murdered. And the next night, she performs for the first time a new song that she writes in that moment called Why the King of Love is Dead. This is everything. And she has to, it's everything. Once upon this planet Earth lived a man of humble birth, preaching love and freedom for his fellow man. He was dreaming of the day peace would come to earth to stay. And he spread this message all across the land. Turn the other cheek, he'd plead. Love thy neighbor was his creed. Pain, humiliation, death, he did not dread. With his Bible at his side, from his foes he did not hide. hard to think that this great man is dead oh yeah Ugh. I just mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. she was so in touch with her rage she was so in touch with her rage and I think that's why everyone had to put the crazy label on her Now, in this book, Nina Simone does delve into the fact that she did suffer from mental illness. She at one point is on tour with Bill Cosby. She was opening for Bill Cosby in like a nationwide tour. And she says she had visions of laser beams and heaven with skin, always skin involved in there somewhere. And you're like, wow, she was literally seeing lasers and the sky covered in skin. Like she... She really, she sees young children who aren't there, who come in to comfort her at certain moments. She was suffering through a lot of stuff. Her marriage fell apart, thank God. But she's, oh, I love this quote. She says, I'd look in the mirror and see two faces, knowing on the one hand, I loved being black and being a woman, and that on the other, it was my color and sex, which had fucked me up in the first place. I was just on this page, bitch. Man, I'm telling you, she she understands the the dual. She explains the duality and complexity of all of the various things going for her and against her. Talk about holding two things in one hand. She's holding eight things in one hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's so I'm it's spun. so much. I mean, I'm spun. One of my favorite Nina Simone performances of all time is her performance of the song Feelings. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. 
Nothing more than feelings Feelings of love You know that Okay, as a robot gets herself together And we do it And we get to the middle Where we have forgotten our feelings of love You will help me, huh? <clears throat> Teardrops Falling down on my face Trying to forget all my feelings of love God damn I mean, you know what? What a shame to have to write a song like that I'm not making man fun of the man. I do not believe the conditions that produced a situation that demanded a song like that. Well, come on, clap, damn it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's a 12-minute version of Feelings, and it's so <laughs> amazing and beautiful, and you should watch the whole thing. But it kind of sums up how she got to a point where she was making the music and trying to communicate so much to a human race that wasn't ready to receive the truth. It filled her with so much, that, and not everyone else was able to deal with as much emotion and thought and complexity as she was. As complex as she heard the music in her mind was how complex she felt it in her soul or she felt the human situation in her soul. Right. It's just, inc it's incredible to me. It's and, incredible to me that she existed. And she felt all of those feelings. And in the later part of the book, uh, she does start kind of, uh, jumping, jumping across the world and traveling uh, and having so many affairs. <laughs> Y'all, I would say like up, the, about the, the last 40 pages, she's, she's dating the PM, prime minister of Barbados. When minister I'm dating the PM, she kept saying that when I went, when you know the PM, that she moves from like one palace to another palace, being the mistress of the PM of Barbados. Um, it's amazing. She dates like these very um, high ranking people in Liberia who then like lots of their families are executed in a coup. It's wild. Yeah. Her demons really start and, she, and her demons start kind of chasing her. She has a fallout with her father, which is really heartbreaking and, oh. and strange. Things start getting kind of strange <laughs> near the end of this book in which it's very raw. Yeah. It's very personal. Um, it's very intimate to read and it's very heartbreaking because once, because as kind of chaotic as her relationship with Andy, her husband, or was, he was still able to kind of balance this part of her life that she wasn't, that became overwhelming for her. It, she had to then yeah. start doing all of these bookings and, uh, and, and getting musicians together. And she really kind of lays out the, the trouble that that is for artists when you have to, start understand, understanding that side of the business and how deeply unpleasant that is and how deeply it is to, to be around other fools who think that they yeah. can uh, co-op her genius and place her or wherever control they want her. or control yeah. her. Um, and, and so kind of the, the, the latter part of 
uh, of this book is kind of the trials and some tribulations that she has. Yeah, a lot of tribulations. And her daughter, who is an incredible performer in her own right, who uh, we saw do Rent, if you remember. She was the Mimi we saw in Rent when we were young. Whoa! She was the first Mimi on the national tour of Rent at the time. She went just by the name Simone, but her name now, and I think her performance name now is Lisa Simone. Mm -hmm. And you should check her out on Spotify and fucking go to a concert of hers when you get a chance to. But she's incredible. Um, But yeah, she was in and out of boarding schools. She would sometimes leave her in Liberia with friends or leave her in Barbados with friends. It seemed like a pretty wild upbringing. And Lisa has spoken on it and has, you know, and has said that it was, it was, it was actually very abusive and uh, traumatic for her because by that point, Nina Simone had, you know, kind of succumbed to a lot of certain parts of, of the stress of the, of that literally the world put upon her and, and just utterly trying to, um, trying to survive. I mean, it's so funny because trying to put all of this book into this podcast episode, we haven't even come to half of our outline that we're not going to be able to tell all of you because we can't do a three hour podcast. Um, But later in her life, when she was living in France, Nina Simone made two of my favorite records of hers. One is called Baltimore and the other is called Fodder on Her Wings. And Fodder on Her Wings actually was just released like last year. I know. I don't know that album very well. It's really great. It's really great. But she continued to just, she continued to just write incredible songs, write incredible music and reimagine other great songs and keep that mix of classical folk, jazz, all of that mixed together in kind of an unclassifiable bag of, of mystery and virtuosity that was just Nina Simone. It's funny. We always talk about our diva, um, our diva, Bette Midler, who genre hops, uh, uh, and especially was doing a lot of genre hopping during her later career. And Nina does that times about a light billion galaxies away. She genre yeah. hops and then rewrites the whole book on the on, on the songs that she is singing. Um, you know, like it's she can take just a little Broadway ditty and absolutely uh, turn yeah. Turn it into a soul-searing and just like reimagine what it's even about. She closes the book like this. Right now, I am as close to happy as I can be without a husband to love. I started to work on this book, looking back over a life which, after thinking about for months and months, I have no regrets about. Plenty of mistakes, (laughs) some bad days, and most resonant of all, years of joy. Hard, but joyous all the same fighting for the rights of my brothers and sisters everywhere, America, Africa, all over the world, years where pleasure and pain were mixed together. I knew then, and I still do, that the happiness I felt and still feel as we moved forward together was a kind that very few people ever experience. I think that's amazing. And I just want to say thank you to Nina Simone. And What a... Um, what a- uh, what a privilege. What a privilege that we have mm. to be able to uh, have this book, have this podcast. Uh, and to have Nina, her music. Have her, have her genius. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it ju- I, it's just, it is, you know, 
I'm in awe of, I mean, this is just, it's kind of that Whitney effect where it's like, you're, you were greater than what the world could ever offer you. Your talent yeah. was so phenomenal that there was nothing that could match that or keep up yeah. a pace with that. And we've mm-hmm. done it. And in a way we did a real, gr- we did as we always do as, you know, as all the white world does an absolute disservice to you and your genius. And I'm, yeah. I'm just so glad that we get to have your own experience of your own life in your own. Yeah. Words. And for you to tell us what it was like for you is so um, valuable. And thank you for writing that. And I hope that, you all go out and read this book. But more than that, even, I hope you just spend a lot of time listening to Nina Simone and take her out of whatever context she was in. And I hope you think about her life in a little more dynamic context now and her music too. And so now I call the book club meeting adjourned. 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 (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We love you, Battle Angels. Love you, Battle Angels. Thank you. Bye, babies. Be safe. Suzanne takes you down to a place by the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night forever. And you know that she's half crazy. And that's why you want to be there And she feeds you tea and oranges That come all the way from China And just when you mean to tell her That you have no love to give her She gets you on her wavelength And she lets the river answer That you've always been her And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know that she will trust you Or you touched her perfect body with your mind Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.